Well, good morning. If we turn your Bible to Luke chapter 1 this morning, we're going to be looking at Mary's song, what is called The Magnificent. Thank you, Adam Choir Orchestra, for whetting our appetite for tonight. Looking forward to that. God has gifted this church with not only talent, but talent that is used for his glory. And we will be blessed by that. This evening, you may have received, if you're a member in the mail, a prayer guide. It is the time to pray for international missions. This is International Missions Week. And this will walk you through eight days. Uh, the date is wrong. They got that. They forgot to change it from last year. Uh, but the date begins today, December the fourth, and it will take you uh, through eight days of praying for the International Mission Board, the Lottie Moon Christmas Offering, the missionaries on the ground, and and then certainly those who have not yet uh, heard or believed the gospel. We have already started uh, as a family praying through this. And it is very helpful. So I encourage you to do that. It's a great way to prepare your hearts uh, as you consider what God is going to have you give to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. So if you look with me this morning in Luke chapter 1, we'll just look at the first uh, couple of uh, verses here to get the essence of our song. And then we'll make our way through the entire uh, song. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Amen. Let's pray. Father, my heart's desire today is that your people would magnify you today as Savior and Lord as we behold you, as we consider the great condescension of the Son of God for us in our salvation. I also desire, Lord, for those who have not yet magnified the Lord through repentance and faith, that they today would come in conversion, in repentance and faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would humble themselves as they see the great reversal that Jesus Christ has affected and will continue to affect. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In September 2018, Ella, my daughter, and I went to, to see or hear the, the Louisville Symphony Orchestra so that we might uh, hear the music of John Williams, uh, the great composer who has written, who has composed some of the most acclaimed musical scores, film scores in history. For example, Star Wars, uh, Indiana Jones, Jaws, Home Alone, Jurassic Park, Schindler's List, and that's just a small portion of the of the films that he wrote the scores for. We learned a whole lot about John Williams that night, but perhaps the most interesting thing that we heard that evening 
was that when he was writing the music for the last scene of E.T. Now, I saw that movie. It was 40 years ago uh, this year. I saw it in the summer. It's hard to believe it's been 40 years. But when he was writing the music for that last scene, and he presented it to Steven Spielberg, Steven Spielberg said to John Williams, your music does not fit the scene. But here's what's remarkable. He was so stirred by the music that John Williams had composed that he changed the conclusion of his movie to fit the music. Remarkable. Songs certainly have that effect. God has hardwired us to sing. It's been said that the devil says, sin and you'll be happy. And the word of God says, sing and you will be happy. God has hardwired us to sing. But he's also hardwired us to be changed and transformed by songs. Now, that's a central purpose of the inspired songs of Scripture. The Holy Spirit is the ultimate composer. His songs are intended to decenter us. We're naturally centered on ourselves. These songs are intended to do the opposite, to decenter us, to, to dislodge almighty me from the center of my tiny self-manufactured universe. That's what these songs are intended to do. And the way the songs of Scripture do this is by directing us, directing our attention to, the, to that which is ultimate, that which is of ultimate importance and eternal. These songs focus on who and what is worthy of all praise. And to give us a divine perspective on what should provoke our thanksgiving. Uh, for instance, the Lord's person, uh, his glorious and wise providence, his promises, his performances, his purposes. And these songs will have the effect by the Holy Spirit at work in us of reversing our life's trajectory. Indeed, rewriting the script of our lives. Over Advent season, we'll be looking at four songs. All four of these songs are found in Luke 1 and 2. Today, we're going to look at, and I'm going to give you the Latin here because these songs are famously known for their Latin descriptions. Today, we look at Mary's Magnificent. Next week, we'll look at Zechariah's Benedictus. On Christmas Eve, we will look at the angels, Gloria, in um, excelsis Deo, and then on Christmas morning, Simeon's song, Newt Demidus. Today, we're in Mary's song, where, where she considers uh, 
the glorious reversal that her son would achieve. A reversal that will one day be global in scope. But as we see in our passage, it begins at the individual level. Now, just for context, in chapter 1, preceding this song, in verses 26 to 38, we have what is known as the Annunciation. Now, what is the Annunciation? That's when Gabriel the angel comes to Mary and tells her she would be with child conceived by the Holy Spirit, and this child would sit on David's throne. This child would be Messiah. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day rule the nations? Yes, she did. We don't have to ask the question. Not to ruin the song. <laughs> After the Annunciation, we have what is known as the Visitation, where Mary makes her way to Judea and her cousin Elizabeth's house. And Elizabeth, who was with child, John the Baptist in her womb, the, the, John the Baptist leaps in his mother's womb, and Elizabeth knows immediately that Mary is bearing the child, the savior of the world. And Elizabeth becomes the first human in history to confess that Jesus is Lord. Now what's interesting about that is that at this moment, Jesus hasn't been born. He's a zygote. And yet she confesses that he is Lord. You know what that tells us? He's a person. He's a person. Unlike uh, people like Peter Singer, who's had a major influence on our culture, those of his will, uh, ilk who say that preborn babies may be living beings, but they're not yet persons because they cannot make rational decisions. In the Christian worldview, a preborn baby has personhood. Well, Elizabeth's praise ends with a reference to. Mary's blessedness in verse 45, look with me, and blessed is she, that is Mary, who believed there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So Mary is a believer. But instead of claiming merit medals for, for this, Mary is going to sing. Mary is going to sing a song of God's mercy in reversing her course. And that brings us to our song, and we see, first of all, a praise for personal reversal. Look with me in verse 46. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. Now, we're gonna see throughout this psalm, or this song, that Mary knew her Old Testament. And when she sings, she's singing even as she is contemplating all the various scripture that she had memorized in her lifetime. And she was a young girl, probably 13 or 14 years old. Sometimes we have, not here at Lakeview, thankfully, but in too many churches, we have too low a standard and expectation for our youth. Well, Mary was a very young teen at best, 
And you're going to see this girl knew the word of God. And here she is echoing in the first verse of her song, Psalm 34, verse 3. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Now, I want you to think about something. To have heaven, to inherit heaven, or even to experience and have a foretaste of heaven on earth, worship of the living God is necessary. It's required. I mean, think about the song. We, we sang some new lyrics to this song, but in the traditional song, uh, Away in a Manger, <coughs> it ends with um, something that is so important to understand. We must share Mary's experience because at the end of that song, it says, and fit us for, for heaven. Fit us for heaven to live with thee there. The song is saying we must be fit for heaven in order to, to go to heaven. And, and what will be the central task and responsibility and privilege of heaven? Worship of the living God. This week I heard a, a, a rock and roll star say, I don't want to go to heaven because all they do in heaven is worship God. That concept is boring to me. Unfortunately, I think it's boring to many people who, who even profess to be Christians. But how are we to be fit for heaven? First of all, we're going to learn that it comes through the, the baby that she's bearing. But we don't get fit for heaven by flexing our muscles and, and just uh, making a New Year's resolution. Christianity is not a, an achieved religion. It's a received religion. God reveals himself to us. It's not something we discover. It's something that's revealed. And God reveals to us his son by the spirit of God. And we, like Mary, behold him. And that provokes worship. Now, uh, notice here, uh, he, she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. Let me give you a literal translation, real literal. And I think the reason they don't literally translate it this way because it could, it could really lead to some false conceptions. My soul enlarges the Lord. That's the literal translation. Now, how can you enlarge the Lord? Well, in one sense, you can't because God is infinite. But we can, God can be enlarged like a telescope enlarges a planet. You know, to the naked eye, uh, planets may look even smaller than a marble. But then you put that telescope up there and that planet is brought closer to scale. You see that planet is enlarged by the telescope. Our souls magnify the Lord when we do what Mary does. When we, we ponder, when we reflect upon his greatness through his word and in the giving of his son. When we meditate on his lordship, I, my soul magnifies the Lord. And, and Mary magnified the Lord 
Because clearly the Lord was her Savior. Notice in verse 47. And my spirit, that's the immaterial part of ourselves. That's the causal core of our being. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Again, she, she's picking up Old Testament. She, here she, she is citing 1 Samuel 2, where Hannah, in, a, in the context of longing for her own child, cries, I rejoice in your salvation. Now, there's not the slightest hint of Mariolatry here. There's not the slightest hint of Mary worship here. Mary was not sinless. Notice, I rejoice in God, my Savior. Only sinners need a Savior. Mary needed a rescuer. But because of the Latin Vulgate's faulty translation of an earlier verse, in chapter 1, verse 26, when Gabriel says to Mary at the Annunciation, she, he describes her as uh, O favored one. The Latin Vulgate translated that full of grace, which implied that Mary herself was not conceived in sin. And so, on December the 8th, it will be 168 years this week, Pope Pius IX declared the, the doctrine of immaculate conception. December the 8th, 1854. And here's what this doctrine says, according to Pope Pius IX. From the first moment of her conception, the Blessed Virgin Mary was, by the singular grace and privilege of Almighty God, and in view of the merits of Jesus Christ, Savior of mankind, kept free from the stain of original sin. But this text is not telling us that Mary is the source of grace. She's the object of grace, just like you and me, through the Son that she is bearing. Look with me in verse 48. For he has looked, that is God the Savior, on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Now think about this. God knows she is poor. She is poor materially and physically and spiritually. He knows her reputation is going to be utterly destroyed. Virgin conceptions don't happen except once. He knows her life is going to be incredibly difficult. But God knows her. He knows her circumstances and that's all that matters. For the next 30 years, she won't be called blessed. She's going to be called every name in the book, but blessed. Many are going to be suspicious of her, but God's going to bring about a great reversal. He's going to give her dignity back, and he's the same God for us. I want you to understand, 
as our culture becomes increasingly opposed to the Lord Jesus Christ and to the Word of God, if you as a Christian determine to live with the Bible as your sole authority, your highest authority, and you determine to be vocal about the exclusivity of the gospel, you will be marginalized. You will lose social and cultural capital. It's inevitable. Mary did. But notice, God is going to restore. He is going to restore her dignity. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. But it would not happen immediately. But it would happen. And that's why verse 49 is true for every believer. Notice, for he who is mighty, I love that, has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy, verse 50, is for those who fear him from generation to generation. So Mary's son showcases mercy not merit. She didn't earn him. And she exalts, notice, not just in God's mercy alone, but in his might. That's why I read verses 49 and 50 together. Verse 50, his mercy. But in verse 49, his, his might. In other words, the Lord's mercy is a mercy that can do something. All of us have experienced mercy from various people, but they really can't do anything for you except feel sorry for you. They may have a pitiful feeling for you, but this God is not only merciful, he is mighty. In other words, his is a merciful force. His mercy comes with omnipotence. Notice, he who is mighty. What does that tell us? He's omnipotent. That word just simply means he can do all his holy will. And his will is always good, it is always wise, and it is always holy. That is hopeful for us. Again, she is picking up language from Psalm 24, 8, from Zephaniah 3, verse 17. This woman bleeds Bible. Notice as well, has done great things for me. This is echoing Deuteronomy 10, verse 21, where Moses speaks of God doing great things for Israel by delivering them from Egyptian bondage. A good exercise for you going into 2023. Some years I've done this better than other years. But I would encourage us all to, to start a, a journal that evidences God's grace in your life. What a great prescription for worry and anxiety and discontentment to just ponder each day, maybe at the end of each day, God's graces that were so evident to you that day. A lot of the graces, would I dare say, the majority of graces that we benefit from and experience on a daily base, basis we completely forget or we disregard. Well, Moses, uh, or Mary here certainly has not disregarded these graces. Notice, he has done great things for me. 
That journal would allow you to say that each evening. He has done great things for me today. Notice as well, holy is his name. As we looked at in Exodus 3, his name is his self-revelation. His name tells us who he is. Of course, the, the central reality of who God is, he is, he is Lord. It's, it's who he is in his essence and in his totality. Um, but this also explains, holy is his name, that explains why Mary is bearing the baby she's bearing. Because I want you to think about this for a moment. In his holiness, God could have justly just judged us all. He could have rightly, righteously, and justly condemned us all in his holiness. But he doesn't because of the baby she's bearing. Notice as well, his mercy is for those who fear him. He can be merciful because of the zygote in her womb. This means, what does mercy mean? I've heard this distinction. God's grace covers up our guilt and God's mercy covers up the consequences of our transgressions. I like the way that that distinction is made. Uh, some have said grace is God giving us what we don't deserve and mercy is God withholding what we do deserve. But we all recognize our need for mercy. But how can he do that without being unjust? Just think of a judge. You stand before the judge and you... You harmed someone. You perhaps murdered someone. And that judge says, don't worry about it. I'm going to be merciful to you. Well, we would all recognize that's not a good judge. So how can God be merciful to us when his name is holy? Again, it lies in the answer to that, lies in the zygote in her womb. But I want you to consider this. This is not universalism. His mercy is only experienced by those, notice, who fear him. That's an old covenant way. Remember, even though Luke is in the New Testament, until Jesus is raised from the grave, the old covenant is the covenant in play. This is an old covenant way of speaking about saving faith. Uh, the fear of God is every biblical and right response to the revelation of God. It, it's exaltation, it's praise, it's, it's blessing, it's love, it's gratitude, it's fear, it's belief, it's faith, it's repentance. That's the fear of God. It is for those who fear him. Now, understanding even fear is a gift. That's why the psalmist would say, unite my heart to fear your name. This is one of those times where we recognize God's sovereignty and our responsibility. This mercy is for those who fear him. In other words, if you're going to experience the mercy of God in the Son of God, you must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't come by osmosis. So we've seen here a, a praise for personal reversal. In the second part of this passage, we see a promise of global reversal. A promise of global reversal. And this is our hope. Notice verse 51. 
He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. God's arm, he he is a spirit. He does not have a body like us. This is metaphorical language. It speaks of his power, his omnipotence. And in his strength, notice, he scatters the proud. Who are the proud? Those who do not fear God. Those who refuse to repent of their sins are those the scripture deems as proud. In other words, Advent season, Christmas means salvation for the humble, but judgment for the proud. Again, Jesus is bringing about a a complete reversal of human values. And this is horrible Horrific news for those who, notice, possess in their thoughts, the thoughts of their hearts, that God would actually be impressed with their goodness and their benevolence and the effulgence of their glory. Indeed, verse 52, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones whether it's your little personal, self-constructed throne or the kings of the earth, he brings down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. This is God's way. He brings down the proud, he exalts the humble. It may not happen immediately because we live in the, the already but the not yet. It can happen immediately, but we know ultimately it will happen Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Peter says to suffering Christians, to Christians who are under persecution in 1 Peter 5, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and in due time, he will exalt you. Jesus is reversing everything that is broken in this world. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, when the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords came into this world, he came into a stable. This is gospel, this is salvation. God turning upside down, reversing everything we have ever thought, everything we have taken pride in. The mighty? Why, he will pull them down from their seats. Let any man arise and say he is going to govern, to be the God of the whole world. You need not be afraid. He will be put down. Every dictator has gone down. They all do. Finally, the devil and all that belong to him will go down to the lake of fire will be destroyed forever. The Son of God has come into the world to do just that. Amen. But note the grace of God again. He has exalted those of humble estate. He will take those who have little worth in the world's eyes. Do you ever feel marginalized? You see these stars, whether they're Actors or or musicians, politicians, or athletes. And and you see them on the big stage. And they receive all this acclaim. And you feel small and and insignificant. Well, he's going to take those who have little worth in the world's eyes. And he is going to give us meaning and dignity and grace. Well, notice in verse 53, let's close out this passage. He has filled the hungry with good things. 
and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Now, this promise will only be fully realized in the new heavens and new earth. But as Christians, we have been given a down payment of our inheritance in the Holy Spirit. Okay? And that Holy Spirit cries within us, groans within us, as we wait for the fullness of our redemption. But there's an implication here when he speaks about the rich. They're only rich for a time. Psalm 62 says, those who are of high estate are a delusion. Those who have platform and, 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 and have worldly significance. The psalmist says, that's a delusion. It's not real. I'm reminded of a story of a true story of a, a general, a scoffer who sat at a table at a presidential prayer breakfast with a, with a chaplain. And, and he looked across the table at the chaplain. And he said, chaplain, tell me about the afterlife. And the chaplain, knowing that the general wasn't serious about the things of God, he says, well, general, in the afterlife, you will not be a general. This language of hungry. Now, in many places of the world today, it's speaking not just metaphorically. There are people who hunger today. Mary was poor. She would have known what true hunger is. When I was in Ghana on my first mission trip, I may have shared this story with you, but one of the pastors there who had spent some time in seminary here in the United States, I was talking to him and I said, his name was Dunfei, and I said, Dunfei, here in, the, in, in Ghana, the people are so spiritually ripe. In America, you, it's like pulling teeth to have a spiritual conversation with someone. He said, let me tell you why. He said, over here, we live in a state of poverty and hunger. He says, over there, when you say, give us this day, our daily bread, it's just something you memorized, maybe in Sunday school class, but it hasn't taken root because you know, deep down, you can just drive down to the grocery store or the burger joint. Over here, we have to cry daily, give us this day, our daily bread, or we're going to starve to death. And he says, you're just as desperate as we are. You just don't know it because your prosperity has covered your desperation up. He's promising here that one day the hunger, the hungry will be satisfied. And this is because he's faithful to his promise. Verse 55, he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. In other words, the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham would come through the Davidic covenant... It would be a son, a king from David's line. And here, Mary recognizes in this song that she is bearing the fulfillment of the promise made to David and to Abraham. Well, let's close this out. Just a couple of points to ponder. Several truths. I just want to give you three. First of all, the theme of reversal. The theme of reversal what I'm about to say is true all the time. What this world deems as valuable, 
will one day be like FTX cryptocurrency. In 2019, that looked like the investment of investments. But if you invested all your resources into FTX cryptocurrency, you are currently bankrupt. One day, what the world and this culture deems as valuable will be even more bankrupt than that. There's one article I read on that says, the abrupt reverse of fortune for FTX illustrates how quickly empires can crumble. On the other hand, I want you to consider a young man that was buried this past week. My, my former student, Adam Holland, is now a pastor in Sevierville, Tennessee. And he took part, helping lead, a, officiate a funeral this week for a missionary whose name is Stephen Troll. Stephen Troll was martyred for his faith in Baghdad in November. He was shot and then beheaded in front of his family. Before he went, he wrote a treaty, a little treatise. And the name of it was, get this, when I die in the Middle East. And at this funeral, it was read. I won't read all of them. He gave 20 points. I won't give all of those here. Just listen to a couple of these. This was Stephen Troll before he even went to Baghdad. When I die in the Middle East, I will die desiring that my legacy of faith would not be measured by buildings but by changed lives obediently following Jesus. When I die, I will die with a vision of possible millions of Arabic-speaking people in the Middle East following Jesus and reproducing themselves in the lives of others. When I die, I will die understanding that unto Whomsoever much is given, of him be much required. I will give an account, get this, of the opportunities afforded me by the possession of my blue passport. Wow. He sees that blue passport as a stewardship entrusted to him. I will die knowing that the battle for the souls of Arabic-speaking people and any lost man will only be won with the blood and the testimonies of those who fear God rather than by men who fear death. I will die knowing that I have cast my lot in the greatest cause for which one can spend and be spent making great the name of God among peoples who have yet to hear the good news of the gospel. Wow. At first glance, I go, man, you, you took your family to that. But in light of Mary's song, there's nothing crazy about what he did. It's glorious, in fact. Having magnified the Lord, he saw anything he could experience there as light and momentary struggles. 
that were achieving for him an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Why? Because of the reversal the Son of God is bringing about. A second point to ponder. Mary is an exemplary believer. She's not the fourth person of the Trinity, but she is an exemplary believer who knows God's word. At 13 or 14 years old, she knows God's word better than most seminary graduates. She knows God's word, she knew God's word, and she believed God's promises, centered on her son, and magnified God in response. I mean, just a few, listen to this. From this song, I didn't have time to go into all this, listen to the Old Testament books that she referenced. Genesis, Deuteronomy, 1st and 2nd Samuel, Job, Psalms, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Micah, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. She, She seeks to put virtually the entire Old Testament into her song. She is an exemplary believer for us. Quit wasting your time on things you will not be happy you invested in on your deathbed. Third, and finally, Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham. And that promise means salvific blessings to the nations. It also means only one king is going to stand in the end. That's the song Mary sings so that we would rewrite our script to fit that song. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy and grace to us. We thank you for this inspired song. Father, I pray that this song has been used by the Spirit to provoke a greater magnifying of you, the living God, with your people. Magnifying you because indeed you are our Savior in your Son Jesus, the gift to the world. Father, I also realize there's some here that can't do that yet. They don't have spiritual capacity to do that. They need to be born again. They need to humble themselves. They need to recognize there's a great reversal coming. And I pray this morning would be the day they come to fear you in repentance and faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As Adam and the musicians come forward, we're going to have pastors standing here at the end of the aisles. Maybe you realize this morning you haven't experienced that mercy yet. Yes, you experience it every day in a common mercy way. The fact that you got up this morning and and, and you had health to get here. That, that's God's common mercy to you. But, but this, I'm talking about the saving mercy of God. Where you are turned inside out. And you are known more for your repentance than you are for your sin. You can have that mercy today. But you have to humble yourself. You have to come to the son. You have to come to the one that Mary had in her womb, and you have to come in repentance and faith. That's all you have to do. And we want to give you an opportunity to do that as we stand and as we sing. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. 
Visit lakeviewbaptist.org slash contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.